Welcome everybody to session six of Micha Goodman on Moses. To frame it, it's very simple. Moses is the father of two very noble failed revolutions. That is what you're going to hear in this amazing lecture of Micha. Moses wanted to do politics very differently than had been done before. His vision is beautiful, but it failed. Moses wanted to do religion different than it had ever been done before, a beautiful vision, but it failed. And our question is, what happens when our noblest ideals and our noblest ideas do not come to pass? That is the question of the lecture we're about to hear now. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. Power is powerful, <laughs> power is seductive, and power has the ability to distort religion and to distort power, and to distort politics. When power distorts religion, it turns religion into magic. When power seduces politics, it distorts politics and it turns it into tyranny. Those tyranny, tyranny. Politics can always be seduced. Politics can always turn into tyranny. And religion could always be seduced. It could always turn into magic. And it's a parallel process. It's actually the same process. Politics that turns into tyranny, it's politics that's about control. And religion that turns into magic is religion that's about control. So when politics and religion are about control, you have the worst brands of politics, the worst brands of religion, tyranny, and magic. Now, why is it that power is so seductive? So we have two great theories to explain the seductive power of power. One is by Spinoza and the second is by Sigmund Freud. There's two different human fantasies. The way Spinoza understands a human fantasy we have a fantasy to have control. We have a fantasy to control things. That fantasy comes from anxiety. We're afraid of losing control. We're afraid of the world with no certainty. That's because we know two things. We know that there is a future and we know that we don't know the future, which we know anything can happen, which is the reason why our existential condition is of anxiety. And then someone tells you a story. You could control your destiny. You can, you can control it. And religion is a way to control. You perform a ritual, it rains. Another ritual, you win the war. Religion gives you an illusion of control. It liberates you from anxiety. Politics, tyranny, gives you a sense of control. So you overcome anxiety through control. And the fantasy of, of control could be fulfilled through politics and through religion. When they're both about control, so they satisfy our need for power and for certainty. Sigmund Freud has a different understanding of what our fantasies are about. I would sh I'm sure he would agree with Spinoza. We have a fantasy to be in control. But we also have a fantasy to be controlled. We also have a fantasy to lose control, to have someone else controlling us. That is because the founding memory, the founding experience of each and every one of us being a child and having grown-ups, responsible grown-ups that know everything and they can, they're omnipotent and they're powerful and they could take care of us. According to Freud, many times we want to regress to be children again. We want to be infantilized. We want to be infants again. We want just for a few minutes, for a few hours, for a few days, for someone else to be in control, for someone else to take care of us and control us. You know what serves that fantasy? Religion. 
when you believe that there's somebody bigger than you controlling you. You know what else serves that fantasy? Tyranny. When there's an all-knowing, all-controlling, charismatic leader that controls you. So religion and politics could serve to, to, to fulfill two different fantasies, opposite fantasies. The fantasy to have power and the fantasy not to have power. The fantasy to control and the fantasy not to be in control. To be controlled. Who's right? Freud or Spinoza? I think they're, in a very deep sense, both helpful to understanding human psyche. And why is it that politics and religion are, have such an important role in our life and how easily politics turns into tyranny and religion becomes magic. And they both become about control. And this framing, this conceptual framing, I think is helpful to understand the two revolutions of the book of Deuteronomy, the two revolutions of Moshe. One revolution is creating, is cultivating a religion that's not about control. A religion where God is beyond the realm, beyond nature, beyond the area, beyond the realm that we control. And you remember that he didn't even appear in Mount Sinai. What we saw is that we didn't see. And you can't capture God through an icon. You can't control God's energy. You're controlled by God. You can't control Him. And then it's a different religion and different politics. Taking God out of the temple is a new religion. And taking absolute power out of the monarchy is new politics. And those are the two revolutions of Moshe the two revolutions of the book of Deuteronomy, reshaping religion and reshaping politics, limiting the role of power in both. So this is what everything we've established until now. In the last five lectures, we're entering now the sixth lecture. I would like to ask a broader question now. Now that we've tried to establish, learn, investigate, understand the two revolutions of the book of Deuteronomy, the two revolutions of Moshe, I want to ask another question. How did it work out? Was he successful? And here's what I would like to a question. The Bible is asking us to imagine the following narrative. The Hebrews were in Egypt, they escape Egypt. They wander the desert and the inter Eretz Canaan. In the desert, they receive the theory, the vision that they need to implement and turn into a reality when they enter the Promised Land, when they enter Eretz Canaan, when they enter Eretz Israel. So the move from the desert to the Promised Land is the move from the theory to the practice. And here's a question that they deliver. Did they create a society where where you had a temple, but you were aware of the fact that God was not in the temple. That you perform rituals, and you're aware of the fact that those rituals don't give you an illusion of control. That they create a society where you have a monarchy, you have a king, but the king has limited power and not absolute power. Did they create this new brand of religion and this new brand of politics? Were they successful? And this is a question I want to ask now, this broader question, and I want to ask this question to, first of all, the prophet Jeremiah. And before we start reading chapter 7 in the prophet Jeremiah, which I think he has what to say about the question we've just asked, did this work? And Jeremiah is going to answer the religious question. Later on, we'll see the political question. I want to remind ourselves that the vision of Deuteronomy is not the only vision in the Bible. We also have the vision of Leviticus. And the religious theory of Leviticus is founded on a word with three letters in the Hebrew language, Shin Kaf Nun, Shachan, where the Mishkan is where God some way dwells. And the founding moment is when he says, Vasuli Mikdash ve Shachanti Betocham. In some way, some mysterious way, God is somehow present in the temple or in the tabernacle. He's present in that space that's above the ark. 
and the Kaporet and between the Kruvim, between the Caribs. He's somehow there. And in the book of Deuteronomy, as we've learned, God is not there. We have two ideas of what the temple is supposed to be about. And with that in mind, I'd like to read chapter 7 in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is considered by many the prophet that is continuing the school of Deuteronomy. He deepens and amplifies the basic ideas of the last speech of Moshe, as we'll see now. This is the words, the revelation that God had to Jeremiah. Amod b'sha'ar beit Adonai. V'karat asham et adavar hazeh. V'amarta shimu dvar Adonai kol yehuda ba'im b'sha'arim ha'eile li'ishtachavot le'adonai. He's telling Jeremiah to walk in the, to stand in the gates of the temple and to start speaking out a certain sermon, a certain speech. Later on you'll see this is an anti-temple speech. This is very typical of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a priest. He's one of the priests that used to live in Anatol, which is to the north of Jerusalem. So he's the priest that criticizes the priesthood. He speaks against the temple, but where does he speak against the temple? In the gates of the temple. So this is very Jeremiah. Verse 3. This is what God says. Do tshuva, behave differently, differently, transform your behavior. If you'll change your behavior, I want to be now very careful with the Hebrew and very sensitive to the Hebrew. If you'll behave better, you will dwell in this place, in this land. I want to recognize how Jeremiah turns the term shachan upside down. In Leviticus, God says, if you'll behave nicely, I will dwell in this place. Veshachanti betuchan. Jeremiah says, if you'll behave nicely, what does he say? You will dwell here. The big question is not, your behavior will not control where I am, God says. Your behavior will determine where you are. The, the behavior of the people of Israel will decide, will they be in Israel or not in Israel? The subtext is, behavior doesn't determine God's location. It determines the people's location. That's what the people can control, not God, but their own destiny, their own biography. Don't trust the propaganda. The propaganda, the false prophets. Don't listen and don't be persuaded by the propaganda of the people that are saying, Propaganda is always repetitive. That's how it works. And the false propaganda is saying, it's saying that this is God's place. This is God's place. Don't buy it. Don't believe the repetitive narrative of If you change your ways and your behavior, if you'll have justice between people, and you'll have social justice and sensitivity towards the weakest parts of society, immigrants, minorities, widows, orphans, if you do that, you will stay here. Now there's a subtext of the book of Jeremiah, they want to understand this, this chapter. He's saying the following. The propaganda of the false prophets is that as long as God is dwelling in the temple, you're, you have immunity, you're safe. Destruction is impossible. 
Why is destruction impossible? Because God lives here. God won't let our enemies, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, what's relevant here is the Babylonians, God won't let them invade Jerusalem, destroy Jerusalem, because this is where God is. So God's presence offers you immunity. God's presence protects you. Jeremiah tries to argue the only thing that could protect you is not God's presence, but your behavior. Your behavior towards what? Towards the weakest parts of society. Towards the immigrant, the orphan, the widow. Now, who are the immigrant? Who's the immigrant? The person that's not protected. He doesn't have political protection because he's a, a minority. Who's the widow in a patriarchal society? Who's the widow? She's not protected by your husband. Who's the orphan? A person that's not protected by his parents. Those are the three examples of the people that are not protective. The immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And Jeremiah says, you have to protect the unprotected. Then he says something else. Only if you protect the unprotected, only then you are protected. What's going to protect your society? What's going to protect your kingdom? Not the temple. Not the rituals. What's going to protect you is you're protected if you protect the unprotected. He's trying to reverse the psychology. He's saying... It's not about religious worship. It's not about approaching God, which is on top, that gives you protected protection. It's about approaching the orphans and the widows and the immigrants, which are on the bottom of the food chain. Yeah, you don't have to look up. You have to look down. It's only when you have a relationship with them. It's offering them protection that gives you protection. It's not about religious rituals. It's about social sensitivity. It's not about satisfying God. It's about, it's about creating an atmosphere where the weakest parts of society feel safe. That's what protects you. But the people can't listen to that because they're trapped in the myth that what protects them is the temple, in the myth that God dwells in the temple. That's what's protecting them. That's what's giving them immunity, which means... The fact that they believe in the myth of the temple of Eichal Hashem, that myth is corrupting them. That myth that they already have immunity, they feel protected, they don't have the need to protect the unprotected. And as a result of that, what does Jeremiah say? As a result of that, he says this again and again, you'll be destroyed, the temple will be destroyed, and you will be exiled. I want to take from here a conclusion, which is the paradox of Jeremiah. According to Jeremiah, why in the end was the temple destroyed? Why was it destroyed? Well, it wasn't destroyed because they didn't take the temple seriously. It was destroyed because they took the temple too seriously. The temple wasn't destroyed because they didn't believe in the temple. It was destroyed because they did believe in the temple. That's why it was destroyed. In other words, according to Jeremiah, were they successful in creating a society where there is a temple, there are rituals, but we don't think that that's what protects us and that's our means of control? They failed. They were seduced. The temple created them an illusion of immunity. Rituals gave them the illusion of certainty. Religion turned into magic. Religion was about power. And that's why religion collapsed. The paradox of Jeremiah, the temple collapsed because we believed in it, not because we didn't believe in it. With that idea and that critique of the implementation of the last speech of Moshe, I would like now to ask the second question. The second question being, what kind of a political system did the Hebrews create after they crossed the Jordan River? 
So as you all know, there was hundreds of years of anarchy, hundreds of years of shoftim, hundreds of years of judges, and then they found the monarchy. They found the king. And after three generations, the ultimate king was King Solomon. And King Solomon was the king that built powerful alliances with all the countries. He builds the temple, Beit HaMikdash. He builds his palace. He builds, but while he builds, in order to build, in order to, to go into this project, this gigantic infrastructure project of building everything all over, all over Yehuda, all over Israel, He has to have a lot of workers. So what he does, describes, he taxes the people twice. He taxes them, needs their money. He also needs their people to work almost as slaves, to build all these monuments, to build the temple and the palace, and a special palace he needs for his wife, which is the, one of his wives, which is the daughter of Pharaoh, the princess of Egypt. So he taxes, so people are building. And how are people reacting to the fact that they're so controlled by King Solomon? How are they reacting towards that? No one rebels. No one says a word, or at least it doesn't say that anyone says a word. What we do have, we see the late reaction to, with the lack of a better word, the tyranny of King Solomon. The reaction comes after King Solomon dies. And I want to read now from chapter 12. Kings 1, chapter 12. What happens when King Solomon dies? So, the people of the northern tribes, the ten tribes of Israel, they come to King, they come to the son of King Solomon, Rehavam, and they ask something from him. What do they ask from him? They say to him the following. Yerovam is their leader, or is going to be their leader. And all the people, the ten tribes of Israel. The king from the tribe of Judah, the son of Solomon. This is what they say to him. Your father's control was way too heavy, way too powerful. Please let go. Please give up on some of that power. Please control us less. If you'll give up on some of your power, we'll stay with you and you will be our king. Now, the rest of the story is kind of known. I'll just say it anyway. Rehavam doesn't know what to do. He consults with different sets of advisors, and then he comes back and he says, I'm not getting at my power. I will control you like my father and even more than my father. And how do they respond? How do they react? They rebelled against him, and they founded the northern kingdom, separate than the southern kingdom. The united kingdom broke into two as a result of the fact that Rehavam could not give up the power of King Solomon. So first of all, I want to notice that the living paradox of the book of Deuteronomy is actually living. In the last lecture, we've learned that how do you lose your power? By not giving up your power. People that are obsessed with control that can't, will eventually lose control. Chavam couldn't give up a part of his power, and as a result, he lost almost all his power. So we see how the paradox of power of the book of Deuteronomy is played out in the biography of Rehavam. But I want to notice something else. And that is that the rebellion against Rehavam is actually not the rebellion against Rehavam. Who is the rebellion against? It's against Solomon. It's a late rebellion against King Solomon, against Lamo Melech. It's like years of energy, of aggressive, rebellious energy that wasn't expressed throughout the life of King Solomon breaks out after King Solomon dies and it breaks out against his son. The rebellion against Rechavam was actually a rebellion against Shlomo that was directed at his son, Rechavam, which we learn something important. Why was the kingdom cut in two? 
it was because King Solomon over-controlled, overruled. You ask, why did the monarchy fail? Because from this moment, the entire Bible collapses. Now the kingdom is divided into two, and there's civil war between the two kingdoms. Not in all the ages and all the generations between all the kings, but most of them. There's civil war between the kingdoms. And that civil war weakens the northern kingdom which makes it very easy for the Assyrian Empire to come, destroy them, and exile them. And then the kingdom, the southern kingdom of Yehuda, of Judah, is left alone, isolated, very weak, which makes it very easy for the Egyptians and then the Babylonians to come, destroy them, and exile them. So the Bible starts collapsing after Shlomo dies, but as a result of Shlomo's biography over his tendency to over-control, to overrule, to overtax to overbuild. So I think it's fair to say, why did the kingdom fail? Not because they didn't take the monarchy seriously, but because they took the monarchy too seriously. <laughs> they lost their power, not because they didn't use their power, but because they did use their power. Maimonides, and the guy for the perplex, he has an understanding that the Mishkan the temple, all these rituals, sacrifice, is not what the Torah wanted. It's not the ideal of the Torah, but it's a compromise with human nature. Human nature needs real rituals, something concrete, something they could touch, something they could, they could hear, something they could see. It's a compromise with human nature. I think monarchy is also compromised with human nature. People need to be controlled. They want order. They want someone to control them. So there's monarchy. But then the temple, which is a compromise with human nature, is a limited temple. A temple where there is no idol worshiping. And a temple, according to Deuteronomy, where God doesn't dwell. It's a symbolic temple. It's a symbolic house. Not its real one. Monarchy is a compromise with human nature, with our need our need for order, but it's also a partial compromise because it's limited power. The king has limited power. It's not a tyranny. Civilians still have liberty and they're not completely controlled even after this compromise with human nature. So both monarchy and the temple, it's very possible that they're both not the biblical ideal that they're biblical compromise. They're compromised with a double human fantasy. We have a fantasy to have control. That's the, that's the purpose of religion, to give you the illusion of control. We have the fantasy to be controlled, to be infantilized, like Freud explained it. That's the fantasy of having a king that will control us and take care of us. And these two very important human fantasies, human weakness, human psychological weaknesses, are the reason why these two compromises of the Torah with our human nature, why we have a temple, why we have a monarchy. But it's a reminder, they're only compromise. They're not the real thing. What happened according to Jeremiah? They forgot it was a compromise. They forgot it's not the real thing. They started believing that the temple is the real thing. That is where God dwells. The rituals in the temple are what's going to give us immunity, not our social behavior, not our ethics, not our morality, but our rituals. That's the real thing. It's not a compromise with who we, with the human nature. It's the ultimate expression of human nature. They forgot they were a compromise. At King Solomon's time, taking politics so seriously, overbuilding, overtaxation, overcontrolling, abusing power, thinking that glorification of a king is what the Torah wants from us. It's forgetting it was a compromise. It's turning the compromise into the real thing, into the ideal. The book of Deuteronomy presents two revolutions, a religious revolution and a political revolution. A religious revolution where God is not in the temple and a political revolution where the king doesn't have much power. They crossed the Jordan Valley. They tried to implement both revolutions and they fail. The end.
<laughs> I don't think I should end like this. <laughs> I don't think I should end like this, but I think this is how the Torah ends. The Tanakh doesn't have a good ending. But I would like just to look back one minute and to think about the role of Deuteronomy today. Because the fact that it wasn't implemented in the first temple, the first time around, doesn't mean that the vision can't be implemented. Part of the critique of the prophets of Israel towards the people of Israel was that they're not implementing the vision of Moshe. They're not implementing the vision that they learned and saw in the desert after they leave the desert and enter Canaan. They didn't do it. This is what the prophets always, always realize, and this is their great critique of the people of Israel. I want to end this lecture with quoting Israel's Declaration of Independence. Where there's a powerful line there. It says, Medinat Yisrael tihiyeh mushtata. This is anachronistic Hebrew. The state of Israel will be founded. Al yisodot atzedek ha-mishpat ve-ashalom le-or chazonam shenevyei Yisrael. The state of Israel will be founded on the values which are inspired by the vision of the prophets of Israel. Here's something that we know. Which country did not fulfill the vision of the prophets of Israel? The, of the, which country did not fulfill the vision of the prophets of the Bible? The country of the Bible. <laughs> the people in the Bible did not live up to the vision of the Bible. And in light of that, maybe what is Megillat Atzma'ut, Israel's Declaration of Independence, actually saying and actually demanding? It's not demanding that the state of Israel, modern state of Israel, will repeat the Bible. Maybe it's asking that I will repair the Bible. David Ben-Gurion had this exciting vision. That Zionism is our return to the Bible. With all respect and admiration for David Ben-Gurion, I would like to disagree. I don't think the Bible wants us to return to the Bible. The calling of Zionism to fulfill the vision of the prophets of the Bible is not saying return to the Bible, it's saying escape the Bible. Escape the pathology of the Bible. And in that sense, because that in Israel today we have Hebrew and people and land and sovereignty, all the conditions of the Bible are back to life. Therefore, there's an opportunity to bring the vision of the Bible back to life, maybe, and with this I'll conclude, Zionism is the Bible's second chance. Thank you. Religion at its best is about mystery. It's about giving up control. You can turn it off. Wow. Well, if you're still with us um, on this hot August night, you were just treated to a very full and rich lecture. I just for purposes of this conversation with uh, Elias and Eliza, uh, Dan and Michelle are both away on vacation. So with the three of us to unpack it, I just want to basically sketch out, because uh, it, was, it was so rich and so full, um, I just want to sketch out his basic points. The basic point is that Moses in Deuteronomy intended to have two revolutions, a new religion where we're not going to fall prey to religion on its worst day, which is magic. If we pray a certain way and fast a certain way, the rain will come. That religion of Moses in Deuteronomy um, gives us a temple, but as Moses, as Micha pointed out so often in the different lectures, God is not in the temple. God is not dwelling in the temple like in Exodus, but God is so high above, you can't really even see. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a religious revolution where we acknowledge our lack of control. And similarly, Moses outlines a political revolution. You remember the lecture about the king, and what does the king do? The king sits and reads all day in the presence of the Levites. The king studies and learns and is very humble. And you remember the paradox of power, that the only way that the king in Deuteronomy, according to Moses' revolution, can have power, the paradox of power is if the king gives up his power. But if the king holds on to the power, the king cannot hold on to his power. 
And then his point is great ideas, great ideals, noble visions, but they both failed. And when it came time to uh, the religious revolution, uh, and if you read Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah 7, like Isaiah on the Haftarah for Yom Kippur, uh, urges like Hosea and the prophets we looked at from the 12 prophets, the Treyasar, encourages the Israelites focus on justice, particularly for the most vulnerable, uh, the immigrant, the widow, the orphan, the people who don't have protection. If you want to stay in Israel, focus on deeds and protecting the unprotected. But alas, uh, the Israelites were focused on ritual and on the temple and not on justice. And then, of course, when it came to the king, Solomon was exactly the opposite of the kind of king Deuteronomy anticipated. Uh, Solomon held on to too much gold, too much silver, too many horses, too many women, too much building, too much. He was the too much king. He held on to power, and his son was worse. Rehavam was worse. And therefore, the vision of Deuteronomy that if you hold on too tight, you'll, you'll lose it all, came to be. So where we're left is, and this is just so powerful, and it's where I want to pick up with both of you and with all of you at home, and I just think this is so evocative and so rich and so real. Moses failed. The ideals, that's the shot of Micha's lecture, right? That's the beginning of it, right? He, he sketched out two beautiful visions of, of changing human conduct, and both failed. And then, of course, Micha's end, because we always were Jews, we want to end with hope, is that the Bible itself could not fulfill Moses' vision, either politically or with, with religion. And Micha's uh, Haftorah upnote at the end is maybe Zionism itself could be the Bible's second chance. We have land, we have sovereignty, we have a people, we have a language, we have all the recipe now for the third commonwealth. Maybe now Israel today can realize the vision of biblical Israel that the Bible itself did not realize. That's his hope at the end. So with that, just kind of summing up the rich lecture, I want to turn to my colleagues. Uh, first of all, a few questions. First question, what did you think of what he had to say? Did you follow up? What did you think of it? Uh, so I found it to be very interesting. And the thing that was coming up for me throughout his lecture was about like, what defines failure? Because, and maybe this is my own upbringing about like Moses could never fail, but um, there's for me something which is Moses didn't fail in articulating a vision. Maybe Moses failed because he wasn't a very good experiential educator in the sense that he has these ideals, but I don't think that people could hear his Torah until they had experienced failure. And I think failure is sometimes the best teacher. So we can look at it as Moses failed because the people didn't get his message, or we can look at it as Moses is a teacher who's giving like an overview of the coming attractions of lessons to be learned and knows that the people can't get that without their own experiential education. And hopefully we've had enough experiential education we can now take that on. Um, but that, that felt very interesting to me. Like I, I didn't want to be in the space of Moses failing. I did want to be in the space that I believe in experiential education. And I think often change is not possible until we've experienced a failure and see how important it is. That's when we can invest in making the right choices. So in other words, the best teacher is failure. Um, and so, um, Mo of course, Moses didn't get the chance to cross the River Jordan to actually be with the Israelites. So he lays out these ideals, but only when the people own it, live it, try it, fail, can they then become their own teachers? Um, so you're, so you're, um, in a way, what I hear you saying, at least, is a matter of semantics. That Moses, these are not Deuteronomy's failed revolutions. I mean, that's the title of the lecture: that De Deuteronomy's failed revolutions. You're saying, no, no, no. Deuteronomy gave us nice ideals. Moses, by the way, didn't get a chance to implement. The people failed, and that failure itself seeds its own learning and seeds its own new beginning. Um, and maybe now we can get it right uh, with the current state of Israel. Um, Elias, what, what did you think of this lecture? 
Uh, many things, there are so many topics to discuss about this lecture. He's, he's fabulous. He has a little accent, which is a little hard for me to comprehend. Anyways, <laughs> um, and, and before I, I get into deep into the, the theme, uh, wouldn't it be fabulous for all of us to be able to control the future in this day and age and to be able to sing a prayer and to end COVID-19 like that? You know, wouldn't it be powerful and will it eliminate all the anxiety that he was mentioning before? That would be beautiful, right? Yes. Be to have that control and, and ability to change things. So that is right. So in other words, we all have edge and anxiety about the future because we can't control it. Right. And because we don't like the fact that we can't control it, we are seduced, to use his terminology, as I said, we are seduced by false gods, the false god of tyranny or the false god of religious ritual, so that we can assuage our anxiety and the better move is to own the fact that there is anxiety we cannot control, that the future we cannot control, and that religion on its best day helps us deal with that fact. Yeah. And, I, and so I thought that actually his lecture, he gave it before the pandemic, but his whole thing about anxiety that you can't control is so perfect for this pandemic. But keep going, I'm sorry. No, no, that, that, that's one of the many questions that we can talk about the topics. But following what Alisa said about Moses, I completely agree with you. Um, you know, you, I, I had a lot of uh, voice teachers over my, my life, and perhaps you as well. And, um, you know, there is a common knowledge that those who are not perhaps great singers you start questioning, you know, do they have the, really the ability of being able to be a great teacher when they didn't experience in their own look what it's to be in front of so many people and being capable technically of doing certain things. So we can think about the same way of Moses. Moses was the leader that took out the Jewish people from Egypt, but he never experienced to be the leader of a nation. There was no nation. They were walking around, you know, moving from one place to the other. So his ideas were really beautiful and fabulous, but they are ideals only. Practically, you know, he wasn't there. Now that's also really interesting because I had a voice teacher once who never made it. And she used to say, um, that's, that's my major selling point. I never made it. And I always really struggle with my voice. And that means I've actually developed the tools to be able to work best with my voice. If you find somebody who just naturally succeeds and naturally has it and doesn't have to work for it, they've never done the internal thinking and reflecting to be able to build up those tools. So her perspective was actually those who can't do teach, and that's good. And so that's also... So how, I like that, but how, how would you compare that with Moses? Because never, Moses, in a theory, never failed. Because he didn't see what happened on the other side. Right, so there's a couple of things. I mean, like, Moses is an experiential educator. He doesn't do a great, like, he's never, like, they're, they're never in the desert. He's never saying to the people, so I want you to reflect on your experiences here. What do you think is the right move here? How do we, like, he doesn't do group process. Like, Yitro tries to get him there, but he just, he, he's not about group process. He's very much modeling the opposite of what Micha lays out as his goal, right? He's just like, do this, go here, don't do this, be this, don't be this. Um, and... So, like, in a sense, he can't inhabit the very teachings that he tries to get the people to inhabit. Um, I'm not sure that makes him a better teacher. I think that, that doesn't in his case. Um, but he, he can't be in the place that he wants the people to be. So, here's my question. The, the Micha reading, which is the biblical vision failed, right? Um, is that... Just let's stay with that for a second. And, and we don't have to personalize Moses, Rob, but, but Deuteronomy's vision of a limited king who is humble and, and, and doesn't arrogate too much power failed, right? Um, and in fact, the, the shot of the whole story is that the whole kingdom falls apart because the king, both Solomon and then his son Rehoboam, were power hungry. Instead of power limited, they were power hungry, and so the whole thing fell apart. So here's my question. Does the fact that the biblical vision failed, according to the Bible's own testimony, does that make us feel good or does that make us feel bad when we think about our own country now? 
And what are the, and how do you extrapolate the experience of biblical Israel not reaching up, not living out its ideals, and, I, and, and to, to America today? Did I, you think at all of America today as you were listening to... Okay, I, I'm going to let Alisa talk about America. But before we talk about <laughs> America, yes. I want to talk about Israel current day. Because one of the things that uh, Micha said, that it's the belief, you know, the, the, the common belief is that the, the kingdoms failed because they started to fight among each other. And they, they became weaker and the outside enemies started. So look at Israel these days and look at us as a diaspora Jews, our connection to Israel. We, liberal Jews, you said it all the time. We don't have room in Israel, you know. That's one thing. The division between ultra-Orthodox in Israel who don't go to the Tzaba and do don't do all things and all the other people who are not religious who are defending the country. And then, I don't want to get into politics here, but there are many people who criticize Netanyahu for having too much power, being re-elected for the third time or something like that. And, you know, is it happening what happened in, in the kingdoms of in those you know, centuries ago? Don't answer. At least I'll talk about America. No, no, well, before, <laughs> before we turn to America, but, right, so that's, so Micha tries to end his lecture on an up note, a Haftorah up note, a consolation up note, that maybe modern Israel is the Bible's second chance, but, and it's, that's a, a great Bafo ending for a, ser, uh, for a lecture, but exactly what you say, Micha, when you actually think about the state of modern Israel today, of course, there's much about modern Israel that we love. Of course. Startup nation, and it has Demona, and it has an army, and it has, etc. There's a lot to love, but there's also a lot of concern. Um, and, it, and particularly, if he's talking about religion and politics, those are two sick puppies in Israel. Mm -hmm. I mean, religion in Israel is a very sick puppy with the, with the chief rabbinate controlling things. It's deeply unwell and deeply unhealthy. And their political system, uh, we should talk, but also doesn't feel like it's a role model of health. Um, and so I guess my question is, if Israel is the Bible's second chance, and Israel is the way it is, how do we think about that? And does that make us feel encouraged or not encouraged? Uh, so that, that's, that was my reaction to, mm -hmm. to hearing it. Yeah, so I think... For me, what comes up, uh, you recommended uh, Jill Lepore's These Truths um, last year, and maybe a year and a half ago. And that book is all about how the ideals in this country that we think of as central are actually not, they were not the ideals that we hold so, so holy and so true, and that uh, underneath the ideals of, of egalitarianism and underneath the ideals of freedom and that every person has rights is actually the ideal that not every person deserves rights and that we don't want to make things equal. We don't want to give people access. And so that's what comes up for me in this, that, that what we think of as the ideals that we're putting forward failing are sometimes not actually clearly delineated. So if I were looking at Moses's failure, the way I would see it is actually like Deuteronomy as a, as a narrative doesn't always put forth that uh, the the values that he that we're we're saying are failed. As in Moses, very much is that very present leader that that um, that is controlling the people and uh, and helping to alleviate their need for control and their anxiety. But he takes that place. He doesn't give them the experience of working without it. Moses is also very much the king. Like he he's he's channeling God in that king role, dictating what will be and what won't be. Um, who takes power and maybe it's against his will but he very much holds a lot of power so i'm not i'm not so sure that the ideals that are articulated in deuteronomy and then don't happen are are pure ideals I, it feels like they're a little bit impure in their articulation and therefore become impure in their realization if i hear what you're saying we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal well actually blacks are three-fifths of a human being in the constitution so that the ideals were not always so clear, and what the Declaration offered, the Constitution took away, you know, with blacks being three-fifths of a person and the, all the compromises around that. Um, What's so, your take on this? I'm sorry? So my take on this is that uh, w w what comes to my mind is 
the idea, both Micha talked about it, actually President Obama talked about it at John Lewis's funeral as well. And President Obama said that this was a very animating force for John Lewis. And this also happens to be a line that Micha always talks about, which is when the Declaration of Independence talks about the desire to, to form a more perfect union, mm. that it's not perfect, but it's more perfect. That we're always trying to get better at it, right? And that it's like an asymptote, that geometry form, where you never actually arrive, but you're always aspiring and reaching. And what I, what I take away from this is that it feels like both in the two places that I love and the two ideals that I love, the American story and the Jewish story, the biblical story, the story of Israel biblically and today, you have high ideals that are not yet reached. And the response to that is to strive for more. Uh, and, and in fact, that that is where hope comes from. Hope comes from acknowledging that we have high ideals that are not yet reached, and sometimes high ideals that are um, that we have a very far way to go to reach. And yet, if we acknowledge that, then we can be, you know, in in that famous arc of Dr. King. The arc is long, but it's bending towards justice. And so, to me, that's what I hear both about biblical Israel, modern Israel, you know. America at the colonial times and America today, which is we have a long way to go and let's bend that arc mm. towards our ideals. Mm. Um, let's not, and, and so long as we can do that, then we're not down and out, we're hopeful mm -hmm. because we're building. But it's a little bit like being an alcoholic and the, and the 12 steps, you can't make yourself better unless you acknowledge I am an alcoholic. You have to acknowledge the problem and for me, Micha's lecture helped us focus on that first step, that there is a problem. There is a problem with biblical Israel. There is a problem with modern Israel. There is a problem with America uh, not living up to its ideals. Uh, we have to make it more perfect. Let's get to work. Hmm. Thank you so much, folks, and we will see you next Tuesday at 6 o'clock. Thank you. <laughs>